This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. It's Monday, January 23rd, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the federal cabinet is hosting a retreat in Hamilton, Ontario, before Parliament resumes. Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will talk about that news. Kelly Braun Johnson discusses the importance of having open conversations about mental health and wellness. And Apple is reportedly working on a cheaper option. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next couple of hours. But let's begin with our top story of the day. Police in California found the alleged gunman who killed 10 people at a Lunar New Year's celebration over the weekend. Alex Stone has the latest. The alleged shooter had stolen license plates on his white van when he drove away from the scene, according to investigators, and technology picked up those stolen plates when he was in the city of Torrance, alerting police there. The suspect, named Who Can Tran, dead of a self-inflicted gunshot, says Sheriff Robert Luna. He is a 72-year-old male Asian. I can confirm that there are no outstanding suspects. A motive remains unknown. The sheriff says most of the victims are over the age of 50. Alex Stone, ABC News, Monterey Park, California. Coming back to Canada, where political leaders gave an update on the state of health care negotiations over the weekend, federal health minister Jean-Yves Duclos thinks a deal can get done. I'm personally very optimistic and I'm looking forward to significant and positive developments in the weeks ahead. Duclos points to signs of progress. These discussions continue collaboratively in the best interests of patients and health care workers. Five fundamental areas of shared priorities are our common focus. Ontario Premier Doug Ford says the premiers are all on the same page when it comes to getting more funding from the federal government. I always consult with 12 other premiers uh, on this. And it's not going to be a, a, a one-off for Ontario, another for someone else. We, we've all agreed, all the premiers, we all have to work together and uh, stay united. And that's exactly what we're going to do. That's the politics on health care. How about some health care policy? Ontario is expanding a program that sees the province pay for tuition for students in some health care programs. Premier Forbes says the province's Learn and Stay grant is designed to help boost the province's health care workforce in underserved regions. We'll pay for your tuition, your books, and other direct educational costs for a practical nursing program in London, for a paramedic program in Sudbury, or for a medical laboratory program in Windsor. Ford says the initiative expands on the free tuition for nurses in some parts of the province. In other Ontario health news, nearly 12,000 children are on a wait list for surgeries across the province. Karen Rebo has more. 
A viral respiratory surge driven by a particularly bad strain of the flu and RSV overwhelmed children's hospitals in Toronto, Hamilton, London and at Chio in Ottawa. The hospitals say that surge has abated after three months but saw surgeries cancelled and staff redeployed to help in overburdened emergency departments and intensive care units. About half of the nearly 12,000 children on the wait list are waiting beyond recommended wait times. Now hospitals are looking for for more long-term help from the province to tackle that wait list, speed up surgeries and expand ERs. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. Over to Atlantic Canada, there is an ambulance worker strike affecting parts of Newfoundland and Labrador. About 120 paramedics, dispatchers and other first responders employed by Fewer's Ambulance Service are on strike seeking better wages and pensions. New West Valley paramedic Michael Tiller describes how the strike has impacted service for people. Both of our ambulance, say, in, in New West Valley are guy responding to emergencies out of our area. We could very well in this area be facing a, a wait of an hour and a half for an ambulance. Tiller explains that service issues already existed in the community before the strike. Our town, our region has been worried for quite some time that there's going to be a tragic outcome because the hospital is not open or there's a delay in, even a delay in, in getting a treatment or a follow-up appointment. Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury has called for an emergency debate on the issue and politicians from that province are meeting at their assembly right now. And finally, some medical research. Canadian researchers say kids can have a better recovery from a concussion if they get back to school sooner. Don Kelly shares some of the findings. Eight to 18-year-olds who returned to school in fewer than three days showed more improvements in symptoms 14 days later than kids who stayed home longer. Researchers say it's okay for kids to still have some symptoms when they go back to class because it lets them see their friends, avoid the stress of missing too many classes, and keep a normal sleep schedule. But the study says it's important for schools to excuse students with concussions from any contact-based gym activities and let them postpone tests until their cognitive abilities improve. Don Kelly, The Canadian Press. Let's get to the daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you vote on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, what do you do if a food item you buy gets recalled? 33% of you said return it, 47% of you said throw it out, and 20% of you said eat it. Terry tweets in with this thoughtful response. A better question is how many people even know things have been recalled except for after the fact. You know, interesting Terry raises that at Accessible Media on Twitter because certainly we get lots of food recall news notifications here or just recall notifications generally here. So I'm left with a decision every morning. What do I share in regards to recalls? Because some of them are highly provincial or highly regional. Some of them seem pretty out there. Typically what I'll do is I will share a food recall with you if it's somewhere in Canada. I don't really bother with things like car recalls because don't own that car you're not going to be affected by that recall so i don't know I, uh, I i have to ask myself that editorial question every day terry as to what recalls i share and typically my line is food what kind of food's being recalled otherwise y'all are on your own today's daily poll at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc on facebook we'll be talking a little bit about public transit safety with michelle mcquig in the next segment but more broadly what is the most important feature of a good public transit system? Is it frequency of buses and trains? Is it low cost? Is it well-designed routes? Or is it security? 
as usual. I know, I know, I know it should be all of the above. But I'm asking you, in your opinion, what's the one that's going to get you hop on the bus, the subway, the metro, the commuter train? What's it going to take? What's the feature that you look for most? For me, it's a combination of frequency of buses and trains and well-designed routes. I'd say I'm going to give the edge to frequency of buses and trains because that's going to make it a lot easier to use the system. But if you have a good frequency and well-designed routes that can get me from point A to point Z with limited connections that is still straightforward and logical in the way that it's been designed, come on now, let's do it. So that's where I land. Frequency of buses and trains with a very close, well-designed routes in second place. Alex Smythe, what do you think? Yeah, Dave, I think I'm definitely on the side of it's like, well, all the above, obviously. But if you're forcing me to choose, I think I'm going to give the edge to the well-designed routes because in my mind, I find like, okay, if you don't have the same level of frequency, you can still kind of plan your schedule around it on your morning commute. But if you have to plan to make three different transfers on your morning commute because of the way the the, the routes are working, well, you're, you're gonna get more frustrated and you would probably be more likely to be like, okay, you know what, I'm just gonna Uber or I'm gonna you know, take an alternative to doing the public transit because it's already gonna be a hassle. I'm already gonna have to make three or four changes if any one of these routes or, or, or connections fall through then it, it really throws off the whole schedule. Whereas if it got on, you got on one subway car or one bus and it takes you from where you are to your office or, or to your workplace, I, I think that is really the, the magic ingredient, so to speak, when it comes to public transit. But, you know, I agree, everything is so important. And we've heard, uh, we've heard so much frequently and, and more recently about the security on TTC, as you mentioned, you're gonna be getting into that with Michelle McQuig next segment. So I think that's becoming a bigger concern for people, but for me right now, it's the well-designed routes. I'm, I'm not even so greedy as to say that my morning bus has to take me from door to door, but I am someone who thinks there should be a logic to the way you create routes, to get hubs out to places. Get buses to hubs and then from the hub to places, right? So, for example, where we're at up here at, uh, at, at Don Mills and Eglinton, there are actually a couple nice, good single-route buses from TTC stations. Now, the thing is, depending on where else you live in the city, getting to those TTC stations yep. can be yep. a little bit wonky. So, uh, more and more cities should be making sure to build strong connections and get people to hubs and then hubs out to places. I don't mind saying you've got to take two connections to get somewhere, but it should be very logical in the way those connections are created. You shouldn't be standing out in some county road in the suburbs trying to get to a different bus to take you to another county road. There should be a way to get people from places, either let them, let's call them either like sub, uh, suburb developments or, 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 or sub developments, or and getting people down to the TTC stations, the GO stations, etc. Yeah, so for me, like when I used to commute in uh, when I was an intern, Oh, back in the in, in the day, and I was commuting into uh, to Global News, which is very close to the AMI yep, office. Yep. I would have to take the GO train from Burlington to Union. I would then take the subway from Union up to Eglinton, and then I would take a bus from Eglinton over to Don Mills and and Lawrence, essentially. And that would be about like two and a half or two to two and a half hours one way every every single morning of a commute, and that was when things worked well. But yeah, right. as soon as you had one of those connections fail you, then everything was just thrown off. And it, and of course, you're not the only one trying to find an alternative route. You know, you, you got hundreds of people 
all trying to buy for those same cabs or Ubers or, or getting on those buses to fill in on, in those gaps. So it can be really a challenge when you have all those different connections you have to try to make. So frequency does play a role there, but also if you have a single route where it's just, okay, you know, the subway is going to take you further along that you don't have to do all those connections, it's going to be better. Yeah, absolutely. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you vote on Facebook. Don't forget, you can also vote via email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. What's great about that is you can share a longer thought. You can even email in a selfie video if you wanted to, and we can play that selfie video on the air. Or you can go old school and give us a phone call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. No, you won't be talking with me, but you'll be talking at me. Leave a voicemail, give us permission to play it on the air, and that's exactly what we'll do. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather update. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. We're going to start off in St. John's, Newfoundland, where it's cloudy with the chance of rain or snow later this afternoon. There are wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is 2 degrees, but it's going to feel like minus 10 with that wind chill. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, there's heavy rain throughout the day with up to 40 millimeters expected to fall. The high is six degrees, and as you can imagine, a rainfall warning is in effect for the area. Over to Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly cloudy today. The high is zero degrees and feeling a bit cooler at minus eight with that wind chill. In Ottawa, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow or freezing rain this morning. The high is minus one, and minus seven with that wind chill. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. The high is three degrees, but feeling like minus four. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's cloud, it's cloudy off and on snow today as well. There's gonna be up to four centimeters set to fall today. The high is minus four, and it's gonna feel like minus 17 with that wind chill. Over to Winnipeg, Manitoba, where there is snow this morning, and then it's going to be clearing up and becoming cloudy in the afternoon. There's wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is minus 6 and falling, and the wind chill for today makes it feel like minus 20. In Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's a mix of sun and clouds, and then it's going to be cloudy this afternoon. The high is minus 5, feeling like minus 18. In Calgary, Alberta, it's mainly cloudy this morning, but then clearing up in the afternoon, there are wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. And the high is one degree, but feeling like minus 16 with that wind chill. Over to Edmonton, Alberta, it's a mainly cloudy day. There is a chance of snow throughout the day, so be on the lookout for that. Uh, there are also wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. The high is two degrees, but feeling like minus 10. In Yellowknife, Northwest Territories, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of snow today and the high is minus 17 feeling like minus 27. Over to Vancouver BC it's winter so there's rain off and on today and the high is four degrees and then finally in Victoria BC very similar rain off and on today but the high is slightly warmer at six degrees. And that's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up after the break, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will take a closer look at that news story about security on public transit, specifically in the Toronto area. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. The federal cabinet is holding a retreat in Hamilton this week before Parliament gets back to business. Michelle McQuig is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press and can do a bit of a look ahead with us. Hey, good morning, Michelle. Good morning, Dave. So, Michelle, what's on deck for the government with uh, one week till Parliament resumes? Well, uh, what is on deck right now is for the next three days, at least, the Liberal cabinet is going to be holed up in a hotel in Hamilton, and they're going to be having a, a cabinet retreat. Uh, the big focus there is supposed to be, uh, will probably surprise no one, economic matters. Uh, so both the ongoing affordability issues that everyone's facing, driven largely by inflation, and the prospect of a recession. There's been a lot of upheaval in the past few years, and a lot of economists are predicting that this might be the year that the economy takes a real downturn. So those are the two issues that, that the government has stated right up front are going to be on the agenda. But of course, there's no lack of other things to discuss too. And, and it's been interesting in the past that some policy matters have come out of cabinet retreats so uh it could be an interesting few days yeah certainly we'd, we'd imagine foreign affairs national defense anita anand was just in europe last week uh, making a lot of announcements about uh ways mm-hmm. in which the canada is going to support the ukrainian military we know melanie jolie was meeting with the ambassadors from great britain i sense uh, foreign affairs will also be on the agenda here this week as well I'm, I'm sure you're quite right. Uh, environmental matters, of course, are always going to be big. We had COP not long ago, and uh, the Prime Minister just finished going through a bit of a, a roadshow, trying to talk up uh, Canada's EV investments in, elect- in electric vehicle technology. Mm-hmm. Another one that's quite likely to come up, too, of course, is uh, maintaining this confidence and supply agreement with Jagmeet Singh and the NDP. Um, in fact, <laughs> Jagmeet Singh came out last week and, and made it pretty clear that there were a couple things that he needed to see happen in order to... In, excuse me, in order to maintain that agreement. Um, and one of those priorities is the advancement of the PharmaCare agenda. So that would be something else that I expect to see. What, what he wants to see is that PharmaCare legislation to be passed by the end of this year. So um, beginning of the year, we're in the before the resumption of the House might be a good time to start discussing yeah, matters yeah. on that one. You, you can see where the urgency <laughs> on that one is because the confidence and supply agreement is slated to last till 2025. And I'm not all the way positive the government would want to go to an election uh, during a possible recession, right? Even though, even though that is I'm not sure at, at all point, they would want to go there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Michelle, let's uh, move on to something else that came out of federal politics over the weekend. It was a settlement in regards to residential schools. The federal government announced a financial settlement with a BC First Nation relating to the impact, the lasting impact of residential schools on the community. What are the details of the agreement? Okay, it's, it's, it's a pretty interesting one, actually. So this dates back a while. So bear with me a moment here. This was a suit that was launched more than a decade ago uh, by a couple of former band chiefs in British Columbia. And what the suit was focusing on was harm sustained by day scholars of residential schools. Um, they were excluded from the big 2006 settlement that's been the basis of a lot of the reconciliation efforts and, and court cases and whatnot since then. So they launched this separate suit for day scholars. And a couple of years ago, um, the process was kind of was bifurcated a little bit, split in half. So the, the initial phase was supposed to concentrate on actual day scholars and their descendants in order to make sure that they got some compensation during their lifetimes. What happened on yes, um, excuse me, on Saturday uh, was the rest of the case. And that was actually called the band class. So in that case, we had a couple of representative plaintiffs who decided to represent 325 actual Indigenous communities and bands that they signed up for this. And now they're the ones who are going to be receiving the settlement, $2.8 billion worth. That was what was announced on Saturday. And what's kind of interesting about this is there's a lot of self-determination and a really interesting structure 
um, that even some of the bands themselves are saying is unique. What's going to happen is that this 2.8 billion is going to be put in trust and an independent trust. Um, and the nations are now going to get payments over, over a bit of time. And they're going to have some determination over how they do it. When the money is paid out to them, they can choose any of the four pillars that are governing this whole agreement. So they can choose to focus on protecting culture, protecting heritage, protecting Indigenous language, or maintaining the wellness of communities and their members. With the money, they can decide which pillars are most important and they can decide how to spend the money. Uh, they have to do this over one over two 10-year periods. The aim is to have it all spent within 20 years. Um, but these plans are going to give them a lot more control over the money rather than having the government just say, this, here it is, or or dictate how it's supposed to be spent. Michelle, you laid out some history there, but how does this fit into the broader context or maybe even a precedent around reparations for residential schools, or in this case, the day scholars? Yeah, this is, and that's where the self-determination aspect comes in. Those who were, were commenting on this were talking about how this really does mark a bit of a different approach to making these kind of settlements and having these sorts of cases in that now the communities are in the driver's seat. Uh, there were four pillars. The four pillars I mentioned were ones that were decided upon by the Indigenous bands as the, the guiding principles that they would like to follow. They will then have say over how the money is spent in terms of which which of those pillars gets concentrated on and which ones have the most local relevance. So that's the the, the really interesting part is they feel, uh, and they voice this on Saturday, that this is a, a chance for the government to give them back some of the control that they lost mm-hmm. and, and moving forward with how this money is going to work for them. Michelle, coming back to Closer for Home, riders in Toronto are expressing concerns over safety on public transit. Before we maybe jump into a little bit of discussion here, what are some of the concerns that are being expressed? Uh, The concerns all have to do with safety, or a lot of them do. Um, I'm not sure if anyone's following Toronto news much, but if you have, you've seen a lot of headlines around various violent incidents on the TTC. We've heard about suspected hate crimes. You've heard about someone being stabbed to death on a subway train and someone else being injured. Uh, Last week, you probably heard about a a random assault, an alleged random assault on an 89-year-old woman who later died right near a subway station. Uh, That took place on Friday, so that was quite recent. Over the weekend, a TTC driver was shot with a BB gun. There has been a a real spike, it seems, in violent incidents on the the TTC. And what's been happening now is there are proposals proposals on the table to not only raise fares, which isn't sitting right with some people in light of all this, but to reduce service. And that's what's really sounding the alarm on on the safety grounds for a lot of people. They're saying that if if service is reduced, a couple things. A, you're going to be waiting longer for your trains and and exposed potentially to to more interactions and more risk. But you also might have fewer people taking the service in the first place, offering less protection right there. Uh, so those are the, that's the kind of real Coles Notes version of what the yeah. issues are. Um, but that's that's the climate in which this conversation is happening and one in which people are getting increasingly alarmed. There's already a, a fair raise that's taking place anyway. 335 uh, from 325 is uh, going yeah. into place on the TTC as it stands. Again, that that that's natural. Like, fares will go up. I don't see how actually, like, raising fares more <laughs> actually solves a security issue for you. Uh, and certainly cutting down service is not a viable solution either. either. Michelle, this is where we get you to take off your journalism hat for a second and put on your Michelle public transit user hat for a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. and, and, and don't worry, I'll play along too. In your opinion, what makes for a safer public transit experience? Oh, Dave, so early in the morning for such heavy questions. Um, 
I'll, I'll, I'll go first. I'll go first yeah, if you want. I'll please, go first. I'll, 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 yeah. while, while you brainstorm a little bit here, the, the the number one thing to me, even though it doesn't necessarily affect me personally, is just having good lighting around your stations, around your bus stops. Make sure make sure that things are visible for people. So if something does come up, it's very evident what is going on for other people around you. Certainly, the idea of increasing security, maybe not so much on individual buses, but having more security around. So when there is a security incident people can get there from a hub faster I think that would be a really nice one and number two actually comes into some design of your stations I think about my time living in Montreal where so oftentimes you had to go down three four five escalators to get down to the metro level to get down to the subway whereas when I think about a lot of my experiences in British Columbia around around Vancouver so many of the stations are either open air or sort of one or two flights down uh, from from either the ground level or above the ground level, mm. thus sort of creating just less of a, a barrier between you and where there could be security or assistance. You know what? I have to say that one resonates with me because I, I strongly prefer surface transit. I, I actually tried to avoid taking the subway, if at all possible, for a number of reasons, uh, not, including the fact that my local subway station is under heavy construction. Mm -hmm, That's mm -hmm. kind of beside the point. Um yeah, open air, surface transit, more exposure. But I do think having more regular and reliable service would help. Those concerns about having people actually around to witness the events, to have people moving quickly and not just standing idly and waiting for things and, and potentially in darkened corners, like you said, I think the lighting is a big one as well. Um, one, one caution that's being sounded by community members, I'm going back into journalist mode here, but bear with me here, is that one of the proposals is to enlist a number of special constables and the concerns that are being raised around that are, are pretty familiar in that they're, they're concerned about over-policing of minority communities and, and, uh, marginalized groups and that of course is always something to bear in mind yeah oh, like 100 percent. like i i am not necessarily out here uh banging the drum to say let's start a roughing people up on uh on <laughs> on on sub on subway platforms well, that's here good. but 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 in the but in the short term like I, even with those concerns in mind like you, you need to have more security like if there's if yeah. there's an influx of security problems on your public transit system you need more security you need to do other things too you can't just simply hire people and give them a baton and say go wild but you have to do you have to do some fundamental stuff at the base level to protect people that's fair and i mean I, that's that, that comes back to the funding question a little bit in this fair increase but i think what people has people really upset is more is the Honestly, the service reduction, I think, is the biggest yeah, part. And if that they, they feel that if the money is going to fund security, when what's going to happen with services is going to be running on average about 9% less than pre-pandemic levels. So anyone who traveled on Toronto Transit before the pandemic knows that there was already uh, very little wiggle room there, yeah. if any. Yeah. Um, so now I, I really think people are just feeling they're going to be paying more for less. Yeah, that's it. Like, like, like you're destroying a public transit system and then wondering why aren't people using our public transit system? Uh, you, you can't have you can't have it both ways. It's certainly from the point of from the point of those running and administering the system. Hey, Michelle, we got to get out of here. But nice chatting with you this morning and we will catch up with you on Friday for the news panel. You sure will. Have a great week, everyone. That's Michelle McQuig, weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up next, Kelly Braun Johnson will discuss the importance of having open conversations about mental health and wellness. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes. 
Unpercent rise in trading Friday, while U.S. markets rode a late-week lift by the tech sector. Toronto's TSX index gained 161 points to close at 20,503. New York's Dow Jones average added 330 points, and the Nasdaq surged 288 points, or 2.7 percent. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index gained 352 points. Hong Kong's markets were closed today for Lunar New Year holidays, and our dollar is trading overseas this morning higher at 74. 4.89 cents U.S. A Bank of Canada report on consumer expectations released last week says more than a quarter of Canadians expect to see deflation five years from now. However, economics professor Stephen Gordon from Montreal's Laval University said the chance of there being such a decrease in prices is extremely unlikely. Coming up this week, the Bank of Canada will release its latest interest rate decision and monetary policy report on Wednesday. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Before this conversation begins, I want to offer a disclaimer. We're going to be talking about mental health and suicide. You may find this conversation triggering, so I wanted to offer some discretion. Also, you may be struggling yourself. After the interview, I will be sharing some resources that you can reach out to. Those will also go up on our blog after the show, ami.ca slash now. Talking about mental health and wellness is important. Supporting people on their mental health journey is important too. The conversation certainly has shifted in the last decade, but there's still a long way to go in terms of normalizing some of the really difficult conversations, especially when someone is dealing with suicidal thoughts or ending their own life. Kelly Braun Johnson wants to share some perspective on this. Kelly is the founder of Completely Inclusive. Hey, good morning, Kelly. Thank you for making time for us today. Hi, good morning, Dave. So what are some of the underlying statistics that people should consider when thinking about suicide and mental health? So let's also start with the beginning that, you know, Canadians' mental health has been really affected by the pandemic. Um, and some stats that might be interesting uh, or of note for people is that teenagers especially have struggled during this pandemic. Um, and most notably, teen girls have actually reported higher rates of suicidal thoughts. And the other demographic that people might be surprised about is the, in Canada at least, the, the highest rates of suicide are occurring in men aged 40 to 59. Mm. Uh, the conversation around mental health has certainly shifted over the last decade, but why do you think suicide or suicidal thoughts have remained something of a third rail? Well, I think there's still so much stigma around mental health in general. And then suicide is even considered like an extra taboo to talk about. Um, I think there's a, you know, this, there's a holdover from a lot of religious beliefs, but even as we've become more secular, there's still a lot of um, discomfort with talking about um, suicide and, and the shame that's around it. Um, and in general, I think people are uncomfortable with death, even when mm. death is expected, mm -hmm. even when people, we don't really want to talk about it. But the concept of of somebody experiencing suicidal thoughts um, puts us even into a, a greater sense of fear. Um, again, the shame. And there's also this, this falsely held belief that uh, if we talk to somebody about it, um, that that will put an idea in their mind and that will make them then take action. Mm. When research shows it's actually the opposite. 
that when we allow somebody who's having suicidal thoughts or suicidal ideation to express themselves, to share their thoughts, that actually will relieve or start to kind of, it's like a release valve, will, will diminish a lot mm -hmm. of the um, the feelings that they're having and they don't feel so alone. That's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to talk about this today is as you and I were discussing it over email because it, it is really important that we understand and let people reach out. And, and I wonder if, if giving people more resources to have the capacity to talk about it might, might improve that situation as well. Because certainly in this case, we're talking about what would be a more extreme distress and not everybody is a licensed therapist or a psychologist or a psychiatrist who has the capacity to necessarily intervene but we should give people a greater capacity and comfort in being able to talk about it absolutely and i'm i, I want to be clear too that i'm not advocating that anybody put themselves in a situation where they feel that they're overwhelmed that they're not able to handle it um and so i really do advocate for people taking a mental health first aid course um, I'm certified in mental health first aid the same way that you would with physical first aid mm. um, and to be able to intervene and to have that comfort, that confidence to be able to intervene. But it's really important that everybody take care of themselves first, put your own oxygen mask first, as they say, mm -hmm. um, and don't put yourself in a situation that you don't feel that you're able to support somebody who has suicidal thoughts. Kelly, I hope you don't think that I'm trying to force this question, but so often on the show we explore ideas of intersectionality. How might intersectionality play into this conversation, whether that be for people with disabilities, people of color, or other underrepresented people? Well, intersectionality is always relevant. That's my, it should be my middle name now. Mm. It's everything that I bring into everything. Um, but it's it's important to look at certain populations that might be more affected. Um, a, a big topic right now is medical assistance in dying. And we know that this can disproportionately affect people with disabilities who might be struggling from mental health issues due to the lack of care and access for their primary disability. Um, and that is not the solution. The solution is when, when people are lacking services, the solution is not to then offer them uh, medical assisted dying. And the Canadian Mental Health Asso Association is, is very clear on this. This is mm -hmm. uh, very important that we need to protect um, people who have mental health issues. Um, another specific group that has very high rates of suicide are autistic people. Um, I've read some stats that say that our life expectancy is 35 years, so I've actually lift past that, um, but it's often due to, to suicide. And in fact, autistic women statistically have a 20% higher rate of suicide than non-autistic women. Um, so oh. it's important that we look at different populations, different groups, see how we can support each community um, with their mental health issues and the over the, the layer or the extra level of of complexity when we bring in intersectionality. Mm -hmm. uh, Kelly, you alluded to it a little bit before, but maybe we can go a little bit deeper. What do you think needs to change in terms of how people, how we as people think about other people experiencing a significant mental health distress? Well, I think that we need to understand that, that suicidality and mental health issues don't have a specific look. Um, Unless you're very close to somebody, you might not know they're struggling. Actually, you probably won't. Um, if we just go back to the stat that I shared at the beginning uh, with the highest rates in Canada right now being men aged 40 to 59, um, these are typically men who at this point of their life, they have a partner, they might have children, uh, they might be at the high point of their career or close to retirement. Um, so 
on the surface, they have it all, as we say, right? Mm. They, they look like they have everything. Um, and we look at, let's say, recent celebrity suicides, too, that, you know, a comedian, an entertainer, always making people laugh, um, yeah. always looking like they're having a great time, and yet uh, they still end up taking their lives. Um, so I've seen it many times. I call it the functionally depressed, where you get up, you go to work, go home, you pretend everything's fine. Um, and you don't, you can't tell by looking at someone. You can't tell by what they're putting on social media. You can't tell by the fact that they're still showing up at work every day. So we need to kind of get out of our our heads, so to speak, and say, it doesn't have a certain look. We have to be close to people. We have to have really um, vulnerable relationships with people to know really what's going on. Mm. Kelly, so often you're sharing a perspective on inclusion in the workplace. If you apply that angle around mental health and significant mental distress, what should workplaces do to better serve employees experiencing those distresses? So I think armed with this knowledge now that, that people don't always give signs, people are not sharing their personal struggles uh, openly all the time, um, and the same way that we talk about hidden disabilities, so-called hidden, um, I, I really would like to see workplaces start to fill in those gaps. Uh, mental health care services are not covered in Canada under our Medicare, so that means that private care is extremely expensive. Um, and we have wait lists that are absolutely ridiculous yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, so I was I, I did some work I was advising with a company recently that 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 changed their mental health coverage to offer ten thousand dollars per person per year uh, for mental health care. And that to me is life-changing. We, when we look at the fact that most uh, a psychologist, a private psychologist is going to cost you $200 an hour um, to be able to have the resources, the funds, uh, the access to to have care that is long-term when most, um, most private health plans will cover about 500. So that doesn't take you very far. It doesn't get you very, very, you know, very long. Um, it doesn't even cover an evaluation. So trying to expand, putting, if businesses could put their investment in their employees, in their long-term care, their mental health mm -hmm. care. It's not just about dental and optics. Um, it's about also being able to, to offer something that people can take and then take care of themselves uh, long-term. Yeah. And the other, um, if I can add one more recommendation, it's, it's that I believe that every workplace should have a mental health first aid or the same way that you would have a physical first aid uh, team on staff. Um, there should be one or two people who are comfortable and confident able to handle if there is a crisis at the workplace. Kelly, it's like you read my mind. That was something that I've been thinking about all weekend long as you and I uh, settled on this topic to discuss, thinking that there should be more in-house support that, that, mm -hmm. could, that, could, that could at least uh, intervene or be some kind of triage in a, in a key moment. Mm -hmm. I, I think being able to use those internal resources while also, as you point out, making uh, supports available to employees would be such a big game changer. Kelly, we're trying to make these conversations less difficult. So thank you for t engaging in this conversation with me this morning. Thank you so much. I mean, even if it's difficult for me as well, it's important that uh, anybody who's listening to take care of themselves um, and, and try to do your best to, to support yourself and then to, again, 
look for help, look for services, talk to somebody so you don't feel so isolated in these cases. Yeah, and we're about to share some resources right now for people to reach out to. Kelly Braun Johnson is the founder of Completely Inclusive. If, if you or someone you know is experiencing distress, please call your local crisis center or the 24-7 Canada Suicide Prevention Service. The service is available in French and English and it's toll free. The number is one 456 4566. That's 1-833-456-4566. There's also the First Nations and Inuit Hope for Wellness 24-7 helpline. That's 1-855-242-3310. That's 1-855-242-3310. And if you are a youth, there is the Kids Help phone. You can text CONNECT to 686 868, that's 686-868. Sorry for those of you uh, watching on TV. I had to lean a little bit closer to read that one properly. There's also some other resources available that Kelly passed along to me via email. I'm going to forward those to our senior producer, Andrika Delanerol, and those will go up on our blog after the show at ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. So all those resources will be made available to you after the show on the blog, ami.ca slash now coming up next we'll lighten things up when kim thistle reviews the netflix fantasy adventures film slumberland but first the mac mini is getting a power boost mike tabuski has more in tech trends 95 max chance miller says apple's smallest computer now gets the company's latest m2 chip with the option for a faster m2 pro the big addition here is that m2 pro model because it's a much higher performance model compared to the M1, and there wasn't anything on the higher end of the Mac Mini with Apple Silicon. It starts just under $600, 100 bucks cheaper than it used to be, but you'll have to buy your own external monitor. It was kind of awkward before they had the Mac Mini that needed an external display, but the only external display Apple sold at for years was the Pro Display XDR, which is five grand. Now though, Miller says the Mini is in a better position. Apple has the Studio Display, which is its own external display that would pair pretty nicely with the Mac Mini. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Pulling back the curtain onto what it's like to have a couple drinks with Dave Brown, we will oftentimes do a little bit of celebrity gossip. And one of the games we like to play is, who is the most handsome man in Hollywood? And sure, you get your Eldris, Idris Elba's of the world, you get your Ryan Gosling's of the world, but one of the emerging trends in this conversation tends to be Jason Momoa, Aquaman himself. Well, Jason Momoa fans have a new movie to check out on Netflix. Here to tell you all about Slumberland is Kim Thistle. Hey, good morning, Kim. How are you? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. Dug out from the, all the snow we had here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys have been getting walloped with some serious winter out there in Atlantic Canada. So glad you're uh, glad you're well. Yeah. Glad you dug out, Kim, and happy that we get to talk a little bit about movies. So, Kim, I've got to confess, I've not logged into my Netflix in about three or four weeks. I've not seen a preview mm -hmm. for this one. I know nothing about it. What is Slumberland about? Okay, so great. I can give you a rundown. Okay, so story. Is an, is an action adventure fantasy. So if you can combine all that together, about two hours, almost two hours, one hour, 57 minutes, um, 
I watched it with my 18-year-old, and he said, you know, this is something I would never really watch, Mom. He said, but I really enjoyed it. So, so putting it that way, it was an unusual story, Slumberland. So she lives in a lighthouse in the middle of, you know, wherever, and she's with her father. Now, her father, her mom has passed away. Her father ends up, you know, dying too. So I said, you wouldn't think that that would make a good movie, right? He's like, mm-hmm. oh my God, mm-hmm. you already started off on it, like a sad tangent. But it, the fantasy about this, she finds a map to slumbered land. And slumbered land is in your dreams and your nightmares and things like that. And she wants to use this map to reunite with her father. Along the way, she comes in contact with Jason Momoa's character, Flip, who's an outlaw. Okay. All right. So I, I I get it. I get I get the vibe here. It seems like Jason Momoa yeah. loves to play these kinds of outlaws along the way. So let let's talk about yeah. Jason Momoa. It, I'm I'm a fan. I think he's a really great actor. I also think he's very handsome. What did you think of his performance in this movie? And you know his performance. I thought it was different because I've seen him in Frontier. I don't know if you've seen it. That was actually filmed here in Newfoundland, Labrador. Oh no and he, way. He played. Yes, it was, and and that was like I, I think when he first came on the map for me type of thing, and he he played um, a fur trapper, trader, that type of thing, and you know, and that that movie was very violent, you know, very action oriented. Aquaman, well, we are Aquaman, I should say, we obviously know, right? I mm-hmm. mean, now mm-hmm. you know, he truly can step into the role as a superhero, and I thought this was a quirky role for him because in this he he's he's punchy. You're not seeing any abs, no abs. He got pointy teeth, fang teeth. He had horns that looked like um, uh, a a goat, like a goat, a batting ram type of thing. And he's wearing like big clown shoes. So, I mean, he's so out of character. But he's singing, he's dancing, he's quirky. I really liked it. I thought it like you're, you're, you're sometimes like you first come in thinking, okay, this is a man who's supposed to be so rugged and you know, argh. but <laughs> he's like a man child in this show. So I thought he did he did a great job switching into this part of the movie. Yeah, it seems like he always likes to play a tough guy with a bit of a twist. Uh, he was really great in the movie Dune a couple of years ago, playing the role of Duncan Idaho, where he's a big, brooding, muscular soldier, but he also had layers to him. I think about the role that he had. <laughs> In the, the Apple TV series a C as well, where there was some complexity to the character. I, I feel like it's only a matter of time till he starts try to try to play in like the rom com world and tries to show people that hey, I'm a little <laughs> bit more than just an action star and not just sort of a, Ger- a, a Gerard Butler guy. I, I really think Jason Momoa. There's a lot of potential here to be a movie star, not just an action star. I don't I don't know I don't know what you think about that assertion, Kim. Oh, I think we might have lost Kim. I uh, I could wax poetic a little bit more and more about uh, Jason Momoa. Maybe my Jason Momoa take was so bad that Kim Thistle was like, "Not no more film review for you. You don't get to hear any any more about Slumberland." Guys, while we're potentially trying to recon, while we're trying to potentially reconnect with Kim, uh, let's bring in Alex Smythe for a moment. Alex, what do you make of the prospect of Jason Momoa film star beyond action star? I, I think there is some truth to that, Dave. But I also want to push back to you. You kind of tight cast Ger- uh, Gerard Butler as just an action star. He's done a bunch of rom coms too. So they've been maybe not very. They've more... been not very good though. Well, I mean, is that the fault of the actor? Is it the script? Is it a <laughs> bit of everything? I mean, I I would say uh, Jason Momoa's movies. I mean, some of those uh, DC movies he's in aren't very good. I guess that's a bit of a hot take, but. 
Uh, regardless, I, I think there is a lot of depth to the characters that he does play and perform. He always plays these kind of somewhat conflicted characters, mm -hmm. and I, I think mm -hmm. that um, he it's always something that he, he looks for and tries to bring to the roles. I mean, even his uh, breakout performance as Cal Drogo in the first season of Game of Thrones, like, he was the big brooding guy, but, you know, there was also some complexity. There was more to, to his character, so I can definitely see him expanding as uh, he goes in and start picking and choosing some more unique creative roles like this one slumberland i mean it sounds really whimsical it, it's out of the box something you wouldn't necessarily put them in but i i'm now eager to check it out alex thank you for uh sharing your momoa thoughts let's bring kim thistle back in we've reconnected so kim we just talked a lot about jason momoa what about some of the other actors in this film how did they fare well, the, the little girl, her name is Nemo, and I'm thinking, who names her child Nemo? But, you know, <laughs> but her, her Mar, Mar, Marlo Berkeley, my, she really, like, I'm so amazed with young actors. Like, it's just, you know, how they just step in and it's so natural for them. Chris O'Dowd, he plays the uncle. At, now, I remember seeing him in Bridesmaids, so I did. I do like him. Um, and the Agent Green, I, I don't know this actress, but I thought she was really a cool, like, badass agent because there's an agent tracking down the, you know, in Slumberland, you're not just supposed to just show up in people's dream. And where is she, Opia? So there's, you know, there's a nice round out of cast and di and different people involved in it. And and like I said, as you guys said, I I supported you with Jason Momoa being able to pick other roles because in interviews he comes off very genuine as well. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not just somebody who, you know. This is all you see. Like, I, I, I have more to me. So I agree with you there. Kim, you mentioned that the film starts on a little bit of a weird emotional note and then switches yes. gears. What, what do you make of the emotional tone the film was able to set on its two-hour runtime? Um, well, you know, it is because it is, like, yeah, death is tragic. It is sad. And, and so in a way, it's like you really you're, you're it's almost like it's not exploiting it. But I knew that I was into a movie, so I just went with it. Does that make sense? Like, mm -hmm. for me as a mother, mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, she got no mom or dad, oh, my God, you know. And I couldn't go there, but the action goes and steps off, and you realize that it is a fantasy and it's not, you know, real life. But it's a real, I, like, even my son, like I said, 18 years old, he said, that was really good. <laughs> like, he was surprised that okay. he enjoyed it as much as he did. So, so your son liked it. What did you think of it? 18. He's 18. Like, he's 18. Like, what movie can you get that two of us can sit down? I really, really liked it. I really liked it. I, like, as someone used the term, I think he just said whimsical. Like, it was a very unusual movie. The special effects were well done. I think family for families, maybe you need, like, a child that's 10 or older. Like, we are talking about a heavy topic and, and death, and she's looking for her father, and she still has to go through that grieving process. So, yeah, it was... I liked it. Kim, you gave this beautiful description of Jason Momoa with his horns and his pointed teeth. A lot of these fantasy stories can really be visually stunning, which could be quite difficult for good audio description. How did you find the audio right. description? Well, this is what I was impressed with. 
the fact that they every like because I wanted to rewind the action sequence and because sometimes you can miss so much that happens, but it tells you what happens. Like you know the the, the tire, she she shoots the gun, you know her laser gun and freezes the tire of the big of the the the, the dump truck and the dump truck careens on the road and falls and, and comes over the cliff and plunges into the water and she looks down at the raging water. So it does tell and at every step and you know they break the glass in the truck. So every the action is described. So we were not left out of that part of it. Kim, you said you liked it, but if we had to put a number on it out of 10, what do you give Slumberland out of 10? Nine out of 10, 10 out of 10. <laughs> wow. Kim Thistle with the high praise yeah. on a Monday Monday morning for this know, Netflix film. We love it. Well, Kim, really yeah. glad you dug out of the snow. I know uh, Atlantic Canada is getting a little bit more snow and rain here over yeah. the next few days. So hope there's lots of a storm. Oh, yeah. Lots of storm chips in your kitchen. Oh my God! Was that the first storm for the year? Not bad. January twenty-first or second? Hey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not, <laughs> not too bad. bad. <laughs> not too bad. Well, Kim, all the best to you. We'll talk to you in a few weeks. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Kim Thistle with a review of Slumberland. You can find that on Netflix. The film is rated PG. And lots of Jason Momoa for you. Coming up after the break, you'll get the regional news update. Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat after a busy weekend of NFL action. And we'll react to the Vancouver Canucks finally dropping the axe on Bruce Boudreaux. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Brock, it's Dave. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Right on. How are you? I'm good, buddy. Listen, just a word of heads up here. Before I start, before we hit like the the, the sports uh, the sports chat sound, I'm going to bring you and Alex in for a quick chat to a question from something in my regional news update. I'm not telling you the question yet. It's a secret. But uh, but before we roll the sports thing, I'm going to bring you in for a quick chat. Fair enough. I'm ready. Uh, yes, that, that that definitely was for the control room as well, as I keep you all on your toes. <laughs> And uh, Alex, uh, same thing to you. I'm sure you just heard that. I'm going to have a yep. quick question after the Atlantic. My story is in the prairies, but I'm going to finish the I'm going to finish the news. Yep. And uh, when I'm done the news, I'm going to hit you with a with a little round a quick roundtable question. Sounds good. I'm happy after winning money on the games this weekend. So, ooh, mm-hmm. fifteen I, uh, bucks. Nice, ooh. nice. I got three or four right, but I was way off on the Giants and Eagles. So, no money for Dave. Same. <laughs> Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. The Walrus is Canada's conversation, and you're invited to take part. Download AMI's Voices of the Walrus, where professional narrators read selected articles from the magazine. Available wherever you download your AMI podcasts.